In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the 19th Sunday after Pentecost, and we're continuing in Luke's Gospel now in chapter 18. You'll remember that last week we uh, saw an aspect of faith uh, that the Lord was emphasizing this aspect of thanksgiving, that part of faith is a loyalty and thanksgiving, that we recognize our relationship with God and that we continually give thanks to Him. And He exposes that in this parable of the ten lepers and the one that returns to God uh, to give thanks as a sign of His faith. And then today we have another aspect of faith, a, a, a kind of perseverance, this um, dogged determination that's uh, such an important aspect of faith. And that is highlighted for us with this uh, widow who seeks justice. When we think about the dogged determination of faith, this perseverance in faith, there's no better place for us to turn in Scripture for an example than to the patriarch Jacob. And Jacob is a sign for us, an example, an emblem for us of this kind of determined faithfulness. So you'll remember that Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac marries Rebekah, and Rebekah has twins. She has twins in her womb that are uh, wrestling. And Rebecca says to the Lord, which is important, she turns to the Lord, and she says, uh, what does this mean, that these twins are wrestling within my womb? And the Lord says, uh, the older will serve the younger. And so they are set out from the beginning in the womb uh, for their path in life. She gives birth. Esau comes out first. Esau is red. And he's uh, described as a, a ruddy-complected, hairy man. And uh, Esau means red. Esau becomes for us a kind of an emblem of uh, the American rugged individual. So I'm just going to warn you about that ahead of time. So anybody that thinks that the American rugged individual is going to be synonymous with Christian faithfulness, you may see something different. The second child is Jacob who is holding on to Esau's ankle. And Jacob means he who grabs the ankle. Right? The ankle grabber. Right? And he comes out of the womb wrestling with his brother, fighting for position. Esau, again, is this rugged individual. He is a hunter. He's a guy that likes to be out by himself in the wilderness, to be independent, to do his own thing, to not dwell with his parents. He finds his own wives. He's not concerned with what his parents want. And he is uh, completely self-sufficient until one day he's hungry. And Jacob has been dwelling with his parents in tents, living with them in community and communion, subservient to them, humbling himself, and their presence, and he has a bowl of lentils. And while uh, Esau prefers the meat to the wild animals that he kills, when he doesn't have that, he desires the lentils, so his desire is quick, and he thinks, I'm going to die if I don't get anything to eat. Now, whether he's truly famished or he's just peckish, isn't for us to know. But he desires the lentils and he says I'll do anything and Jacob the heel grabber says grabbing his brother's heel again sell me your birthright for the bowl of lentils and Esau says what does the birthright matter to me I'm hungry 
Right? So, serving his desires, serving his stomach, he describes the birthright. And Jacob buys it off of him for a bowl of food. Now, the birthright is the right of the firstborn. That means that he is going to take uh, over this great uh, province that his father is king of. Remember, Abraham and Isaac are not poor wanderers. They are very wealthy men. They're princes in their region. And so the birthright means great power and wealth. And it means the promise that had been given to Abraham, the promise that had been given by God. So he's just bought the right to the promise of God. Later on, when Isaac is near death, he gets ready to bless his two sons. And Rebekah intervenes and she says, for you to get the blessing, you're going to have to fool your father. Now, a lot of people have a problem with this. A lot of people read Jacob doing this and, and tricking his brother as some kind of dishonesty. Uh, but I, I encourage you to look at the parables that we've been reading that Jesus has been teaching recently. The parable of the unjust steward. The parable that we just read about this judge who doesn't do what's right because it's right, but because it's expedient. And so we're being given an example here that should wake us up, that should shock us. That's the point, to shock us and say, wait a minute, what's going on? And, and what is it that he's doing to get this blessing? So Jacob fools his father, he disguises himself as Esau, and he receives the blessing. So now, grabbing the heel once more, fighting and wrestling for position, he has the birthright and he has the blessing. And Esau finally says, that's enough, I'm going to have to kill you. And so Esau sets about to kill Jacob. Now, Rebekah, again, foresees all this, and she says, we're going to kill two birds with one stone. Not only are we going to save your life from your brother, but you're going to have a wife who I can spend time with and hang out with and not be irritated at, right? Because that's the kind of wives that Esau had brought. He had brought wives that his mother did not get along with, and there was no peace in their house. So she says, we're going to have peace in the house, and we're going to save your life. Go up to my brother Laban in Haran, and you're going to find a wife there. And so that's what Jacob does. He runs from his brother. He goes up to Haran. He marries Rachel and Leah. He also has children by their two uh, servants. And so he has, when he comes back, four wives, and he has 11 sons. The 12th Benjamin, you remember, is born at the return of the Promised Land. So after many years, he returns, and Jacob remembers the anger that was on Esau's face when he left. And so now, some 20 years later, uh, that we read here in Genesis chapter 32, on his return, Jacob is again the heel grabber, and he is what Jesus calls shrewd. Right? He says the people of light are not shrewd. The people of light are naive. Right? I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but naivete seems to be a very popular kind of a thing in uh, Faithful people at large, right? Faith for people at large means I'm just going to close my eyes like a little child and then my Father in Heaven is going to make everything work out. That's naive. Shrewdness means discerning the will of God and saying, what is it I need to do to be in line with your will? What work do I have to do? What strength do I need? What righteousness or wisdom am I going to have to acquire in order to preserve myself and my blessings from harm? So there's no room for naivete. There's no room for this childish, close my eyes and everything's going to work out baloney. Jacob says, I'm going to separate my family so that if Esau comes to destroy one, at least one group of women and children will remain. 
So Jacob is showing his shrewdness and he's showing what is the most important. The most important thing is not his life, but the maintenance of his wife and his children. Right? To preserve them is his main task. That is his goal. That is his job. To make sure that they are safe. And he's heard that Esau is on his way with 400 men. Right? Just to remind you what kind of people these are. Right? These are not poor wanderers. These are men of means. Esau is coming with this great strength of 400 men to fight. And so Jacob separates them in shrewdness. And after he separated them and himself is distant and crosses the river, we get this incredible kind of a scene in Scripture that seems to kind of stand outside of time and space. It's the kind of of story in Scripture that, that is a kind of a standalone that um, we've wrestled with over the centuries, right? And that is wrestling uh, that Jacob has with God. The fathers say this is Christ pre-incarnate. This is Christ appearing in Genesis who is wrestling with Jacob because that's what Jacob does. Jacob holds on to God and he says, I'm not going to let go until I get a blessing. He's not demure. He's not passive. He's not the child closing his eyes saying everything's going to work out. I can just sit by because I've been saved, because I said a prayer, because everything's okay, and now God's going to work everything out. Jacob's the heel grabber. He's holding on and he's saying, I'm not going to let go until I get this blessing from you. And finally, God does give him a blessing and he calls his name Israel, he who fought with God and survived. He saw God face to face and he lived. And so Jacob becomes Israel and he has the 12 sons who become the 12 tribes. And this is the example that we have in this widow. This is what the widow is doing. The widow is saying, I don't have a husband. I don't have a son. I don't have anybody on my side. All that I have is determination. All that I have is perseverance. All that I have is not quitting. And I'm going to go to that judge, not because of his righteousness, but because of my desire for justice. And I'm going to continue until I get that justice. And this is the example that the Lord gives us for our spiritual life. He's saying that we need to have that same persistence in prayer, that same determination in prayer, as if we were praying to a judge who did not care. Let me say that again. We're supposed to be praying with determination as if we were praying or seeking justice from a judge who did not care. That's the attitude with which we're supposed to have. That we're not going to let go. That we're not going to quit. Right? We're not going to let go and say, okay, Lord, I know that you're good and you're going to do whatever you're going to do and, and, and I'll be satisfied and happy with it. We're supposed to be fighting. We're supposed to be wrestling. We're supposed to be seeking and striving and yearning and hoping. We're in the midst of it. There is no justice among us. We're supposed to be praying for it every day. And that's what this widow does. And the Lord says the difference is that you're not praying to a judge who does not care. You're praying to your Father in heaven who does care. And he says, yet will I find faith on the earth when I come again. What does he mean? Will I find people still praying? Will I find people still hoping? Will I find people still searching and yearning, grabbing the heel, wrestling? Striving for the blessings of God. And of course, we know that he will. Now, there may not be a lot of us. I hope that I'm one of them. But we will. Because he's established his church, and his church will not end. 
We know the end of the story. The church prevails. The church prevails. And the same message of determination is told by St. Paul to Timothy in these beautiful pastoral letters where he encourages Timothy about um, how to persevere in being an evangelist and doing his duty. And the first thing he says is, continue in what you've been doing. Continue in what you've been doing from childhood. In other words, you know who you are. You know who you've been raised to be. You have to know who you are and what God has in purpose for you. This is where we get that perseverance, right? This is how Jacob knows that he's not going to let go because he's known from the stories of his mother talking to him from the time in his womb that he is going to prevail. That's how he has the strength to fight. David fights Goliath because he's already been told by, uh, uh, by Samuel, right? You're going to be king of Israel. So killing Goliath is just a step. We continue to fight when we know who we are in Christ, when we know that the victory is won, when we know that he has a plan and that we have a part to play and participation in that plan. So he says, first, know who you are. And then he says, know what scripture is. Know who you are and know what Holy Scripture is. Holy Scripture is what? It is breathed by God. So people want to argue about Scripture and about its truthfulness and about its accuracy and all these things. All that we need to say is what St. Paul says. It is breathed by God. And it is for our teaching, for our reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. What does that mean? Again, that means we don't just get saved and sit up on a shelf. We're supposed to be reading Scripture so that we are trained for righteousness. We are under training, right? We are under training right now. We are being trained for righteousness. And he says, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. We are being equipped for good works. We're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works, right? We are saved for good works. He has given us his spirit. He's given us his truth, his scripture, his church, the sacraments, so that we have the strength and the power that we need to go and do the good works that God has commanded us to do. We are being equipped. And brothers and sisters, if we don't read our Bible every day, we will not be equipped for good works. So if anybody's wondering, why aren't I doing the things that God has promised that I will do, we are not being faithful in prayer. We're not being faithful in the reading of Scripture. So if we want to do the good works, we have got to do the preparation necessary. So, once we have done those things, he says then we'll be ready. In season and out of season. To reprove, to rebuke, to exhort. These are all very popular things, right? Everybody likes that, right? Isn't that why you came to church? Give me a little rebuking, a little exhortation, a little reproving. With complete patience. What does that mean? That means don't expect that everybody's all, all of a sudden going to just change, right? We don't think that we're going to proclaim the word of God, that we're going to reprove or rebuke somebody, and then everything's going to be fine, right? We're in it for the long haul. We're patient. We see the distant goal. That's what we're working towards. It's not going to be immediate. These blessings are coming in God's time. And so we're going to be patient in them. And we know... We know that people are going to be led away in the church, right? We sometimes talk like we're surprised that the church follows cleverly devised myths or follows uh, you know, the ways of the world. 
We don't have room to be that naive, right? He's writing this at about 60 AD. There will come a time when their ears will itch and they'll want to hear what pleases their stomach. They'll want to hear the gospel of Esau and not the message of Jacob. And that's where the world is, right? That's the, the great American independent story, right? Do what I want when I want. Yeah, you can have that. You can have the blessings of Esau. So, Jacob meets Esau. And Esau has forgotten everything. Great. For Jacob. Kind of funny for Esau. He can't even keep it in his head to be mad at his brother who stole his birthright and his blessing. Everything is good. Although he's not worshiping the Lord. He's just forgotten. And so he greets his brother and he says, Come, let us be brothers together and let us dwell together. There's plenty of land. There's plenty for everybody. He refuses the gifts. He says, I've got plenty of my own. And he says, Come and dwell with me. Let's be brothers. And Jacob says, Sure, you go on ahead. <laughs> but he does not dwell with Esau. Because he cannot dwell with somebody who is fighting independence and not seeking humility before God. He cannot dwell with his brother because his brother is not dwelling with the Lord. And Jacob maintains, maintains his relationship to God, his faithfulness, and his loyalty to the Lord until the day that he dies. And his children become a great nation. We will be patient. We will wait upon the coming of the Lord, our soon coming king. And we will fight and we will grab heels, and we will prepare, and we will be shrewd. We will not be naive, but we will be ready by the reading of the word and by the persistent, persistent prayer of the widow who desires justice.